John asked me if I wanted to play pickleball. I said I'd rather eat pickles. <laughs> Marty asked me if I wanted to play disc golf. I said I'd rather play shuffleboard. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, before we get into God's Word, again, this is just a reminder. We're going to be throwing out to you every month one or two new ministries. Obviously, there'll be a limit. But our expectation is not that all of you get involved in all these things. You can't. You can only connect to maybe one or two. Find what you're passionate about. We want to be outreach-driven. We want to be a church that is salt and light. So it's not just for you. It's to reach people in the community. So find what you're passionate about. Connect to that. And that's how you can get involved in uh, these particular outreaches that we're doing. Some of you say, well, I'm not physically able. Well, listen, you can minister by intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is a ministry and is one of the most important ministries in the church. So there's no reason why everybody here cannot be involved in something. Now, there are times where you need to take a break. You need to have a respite. God understands that. But God wants a fully functioning body. A body is one, but it's made up of different parts. And each part has a different role or function within the body of Christ. Maybe you subscribe to the magazine Voice of the Martyrs. If you don't, I would encourage you to do so. It is free. And one of the things that it will do is challenge you each month as you read the stories of what God is doing around the world. I was reading the latest edition and in it, there's a lady by the name of Alice. You see her picture up on the screen. She is from northern Nigeria. Northern Nigeria is known for persecuting Christians. Alice and her husband have five children. And one particular evening, militants from Boko Haram and also extreme Muslims came into their village and they invaded her house and they shot her husband to death. And she watched her husband die with five children huddled in the corner, scared to death. She ended up staying in her house after they called the police and they came because it was a raid on the village. She stayed in her house and did her best to raise her children. She had a plot of land and she struggled with a lot of depression. She cried, she slept, but she knew I have to take responsibility for these five children. So she tilled her land and did what she needed to do to eke out a living. Well, about two years later, the Muslim extremists came back, and this time she was driven from her house. She was able, by God's providence, to escape, and she ended up at some lady's house living in a hallway for a season of time until somebody could give her a house. So she bought a plot of land and started to do her thing. She'd give to the Lord. She would save some money for clothes for her children. And two years later, the Muslim extremists came back and they destroyed her crops. Now, you would think a woman here would be under this mistreatment very discouraged, and she was. So she had to flee. This time she was able to get an apartment. And she says, I was very discouraged, and she said, I almost jettisoned my faith until Voice of the Martyrs came in at just the right time, gave me resource, and I was able to live in another house. She started to till the soil, and the Muslim extremists came back again. This went on three or four times. And then to add injury to insult, 
She had to face the man that shot her husband dead. He was her neighbor. He wasn't arrested. She knew him. And so she looked him in the eye and she said, I want you to know that I forgive you for what you did to my husband. Have you ever experienced mistreatment before? I would venture to say most of us not on that level. Most of us here probably will not face that kind of mistreatment. But where it's illegal to be a Christian, that happens quite often. But we experience mistreatment and injustice in our life. It could be a divorce. It could be your spouse bugged out on you. It could be that you were wronged by a friend. You were backstabbed. It could be your job. Maybe you're dealing with a difficult boss. Whatever it is, we all experience mistreatment in our life. How does God want us to respond to mistreatment and injustice? It's not always easy to have the biblical response. Turn, if you will, to James chapter 5. As you know, we're going through the book of James verse by verse. We find ourselves in chapter 5. We are looking at how to handle mistreatment and injustice. This is part two in our message, and we are looking at verses 1 through 13. Now, again, a little bit of background. James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians that were scattered during the martyrdom of Stephen, more than likely. Many of them were poor. They were destitute. They were at a subsistence level. And when we get to chapter 4, James is addressing wealthy merchants. These were businessmen that basically were acting like practical atheists in chapter 4. Now in chapter 5, he's addressing another category of wealthy people, not wealthy merchants, but wealthy landowners. These were landowners that were very wealthy, and they were getting wealth at the expense of these poor Jewish Christians. These Christians were mowing their fields, and they weren't paying them their wages. If you read James chapter 2, they were dragging them to court. And they didn't have a legal system today like we have, so they had really no recourse. And so James is writing to these beleaguered Jews who are suffering mistreatment and injustice, and he writes to them to basically encourage them on how to respond to this mistreatment. And he gives us six ways by which you and I should respond when we are treated unfairly. Let's look at the first one that we looked at last week, and that is this, expect God's vindication. Expect God's vindication. Notice, if you will, in verse 1, it says this, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming upon you. Notice he's saying here, these rich people who are going to be judged by God, not because they were rich, but because they rejected God and rejected Christ. He says, there is hell coming upon you. There is misery coming upon you. God is going to judge you for what you are doing. And he's telling these Jewish believers, God is going to vindicate you. And he says, your wealth is temporary. Your wealth is ruined. That would speak of food. And your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded. And their uh, corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James doesn't mince any words. He's basically using that as a metaphor for the judgment of God as they suffer in hell. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, God sees the abuse that these Christians are experiencing, and he's reminding them that God is going to vindicate them. He's also reminding the rich that they are going to be judged. He says, you have lived luxuriously on the land. 
and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. So James here is reminding these Jewish Christians that God is ultimately going to vindicate them, and he's reminding the rich that implicit in this is if you don't repent and get right with God, you are going to be under the judgment of God. And so one of the principles we need to remember is when we are mistreated by other people or injustices are committed against us, sometimes we may not get justice in this life. God never promises us that we'll get justice in this life. But we must remember there is coming a day of reckoning. And you know what I find out about our culture in America and even around the world? People have no fear of God. By the way people live, there is no fear of God. They don't see the fact that they're going to stand before a holy, righteous God. They deny Him. But the Bible makes it very clear that God is going to mete out justice. In fact, if you remember in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is breaking the seals, when He gets to the fifth seal, John sees martyrs under the altar who had been persecuted and killed during the tribulation period. And notice what they prayed. (coughs) It says in Revelation 6, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? They wanted to say, God, when are you going to mete out just to these people that killed us during the tribulation? And notice God's response. So a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. God promises vindication to these martyrs that died during the tribulation, but he says, wait until the number of martyrs has been fulfilled. God is sovereign even over persecution, and he says, you're going to be vindicated. And so throughout history, Christians have been persecuted. They've been mistreated. In fact, we've seen more persecution in our time period than we have in the history of the church. Christians have been brutalized in prison. They've had loved ones killed. They've had children taken away. And you know what God promises? Vindication. But listen, we all struggle because we want justice now, and sometimes we don't always get justice now. If you've never seen the movie, you need to see the movie The Count of Monte Cristo. The Count of Monte Cristo is the main actor is Jim Caviezel. He's the one who played in The Passion of the Christ. And in this movie, he's mistreated and wronged by a good friend, all because of greed and because he had a pretty girlfriend. And Jim Caviezel, in the movie, is in, ends up being shipped to this prison out in the water. It's a very inhospitable prison. It's way out there, so you can't escape, really. And so he's tortured, he's beaten, and when he's put in this inhospitable cell... One of the things that he carves in the wall with a rock is God will give me justice. God will vindicate me. Now, as the story goes, he struggles with his faith because God didn't vindicate him right away. And he wrestled with whether or not he should take revenge on his friend. The Bible makes it very clear God will mete out justice to those who mistreat us. You say, but wait a minute, Mike, what if they become saved? What if that guy that molested me, what if he becomes a Christian? Is God going to still punish him for what he did? No. That's the nature of grace. God forgives. And I know that's sometimes hard, but we have to forgive those who hurt us. But think about the people that maybe you've mistreated. 
Do you want God's forgiveness in your life? Do you want God to vindicate you? Absolutely not. And so if a person gets saved, they're going to be forgiven by God. Now, once you're saved, until the day you die, God's going to evaluate your life, not for condemnation and hell, but He'll evaluate your life based on what you did for Him, and He will reward you commensurate with your faithfulness. So remember, God will vindicate His own. There's a second response you and I are to have when dealing with mistreatment, and that is this. We are to be patient or long-suffering. We are to be patient or long-suffering. Notice, if you will, verse 7. Therefore, brothers... Be patient until the Lord's coming. Notice verse 8, he says the same thing. You must also be patient. Now, there's two words in the Greek for patience. In verse 7, it's referring to patience with people. That's one Greek word. Another Greek word is being patient with circumstances. And so in verse 7 and verse 11, it uses the word patient. It means to be long-suffering. It means to bear up under difficult circumstance. In fact, the Greek word literally means to be long-fused. When I grew up in South Florida, they didn't allow fireworks. And so I had a neighbor who would go to North Carolina every year. He'd buy them, and I was a young kid, and I didn't care about legalities. And so I would buy fireworks off him every year, and we would shoot off bottle rockets and everything else. And I remember this one pack of firecrackers that I got. When I pulled out one of the firecrackers, it had a very short fuse. And I lit it, and before I had time to throw it, midair, it blew up in my hand. And I looked to see if I lost any of my digits. Thankfully, it just created black stuff on my hand, but I felt the pain of it. James says we're not to be short-fused, we're to be long-fused. In other words, we're to deal with people in a patient manner. When we're dealing with mistreatment or injustice, we have to bear up under difficult circumstances, deal with difficult, cantankerous people. We have to be patient. And you know what? That's not always easy because in our culture, we are very impatient. We have microwave Christianity in America. And listen, it's human nature when we're mistreated, we're attacked, we're reviled, We want to respond in a like manner. And it's hard to be patient and wait for the Lord's justice, is it not? You say, well, wait a minute, Mike. If I'm to be patient, does that mean I can't use the legal system? No, you can use the legal system as long as your motive is not greed, as long as your motive is not a personal vendetta. You see in the Bible where Paul used the legal system? By the way, there are times where the legal system takes over. You have no choice. If somebody commits a crime... The legal system is going to take over. So while we wait for God's justice and while we're patient, there are times where we use the legal system, but we have to remember that our hearts cannot be unforgiving. God has established government, Romans 13. He works through legality. Now, if we're called to be patient, how long are we to be patient towards? Well, what does he say? Until the Lord's coming. In fact, (coughs) he uses that three times In verse 7, in verse 8, and in verse 9, he mentions or references the Lord's coming. We are to be patient until the Lord returns. I was reading again this week about Richard Wombrand, his wife Sabina. They were the ones that started Voice of the Martyrs. If you've never seen the movie, see the movie, read the book. It'll challenge your faith. A lot of people don't know that Richard Wombrand and his wife grew up in Romania, and he was an atheist and he was a Marxist. He didn't believe in God. He was a successful businessman, and he lived a self-indulgent lifestyle. Well, that lifestyle caught up to him. 
And he went to the doctor because he contracted tuberculosis. And the doctor told him he needed to move to a small mountain village in order to recoup. Enter a man by the name of Christian in this small village in the mountains. Christian and his wife had been praying, listen to this, for years that God would bring them a Jewish person that they could convert to Christ. Here shows up Richard Wombrand and his wife. They befriended him. They loved him. They gave him a copy of the New Testament. He reluctantly read it. But when he read it, him and his wife got convicted of their sins and they came to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. (coughs) He ended up going back to Romania as a Christian missionary. World War II was happening. Hitler was brutalizing Christians. They tried to get their six adopted children to escape. They put them on a boat. While on the boat, the boat was lost. Then comes Russia with their communist regime. They take over in Romania and they basically say it's illegal to be a Christian. You have to support uh, communism. Well, he stood up at a meeting and said, we need to be true to Jesus Christ. And they put him in jail for eight and a half years. You'll notice the picture up on the screen. This is the conditions that he lived in. While he was there eight and a half years, they carved his body. They broke his bones. And you know what they played in his ear 17 hours a day? Christianity is false. Communism is true. Christianity is false. Communism is true. He stood up under that patiently. I don't know how, but by the grace of God. They finally let him out. Guess what he does? He goes back to preaching. You know, in the American church, if somebody looks at us wrong, oh, I can't share my faith with that person. They're looking at me wrong. This guy was in jail eight years or more. They let him out. He gets rearrested, goes back in jail. He's there for a total of 14 years. Finally, a group of Christians, I think, in the U.S. were able to raise enough money to get him out, and that's how Voice of the Martyrs was birthed. God used his suffering to birth this ministry that has helped so many people who are mistreated and experience injustice. You know what, Richard Wombrand and his wife, Sabina, by the way, she had to work in a labor camp, and their son was an orphan for several years on the street. I read those articles, and I say, God, but by your grace, there is no way. There is no way. He was patient. And that's what James says here. Bearing up under difficult circumstances, difficult people, Richard Wombrand endured that. Now, he uses three examples of patience and long-suffering. First of all, he uses a farmer. Notice, if you will, verse 7 and 8. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early, that would be October, November rains, and the late rains, which would be March and April. They were an agrarian society. They had to rely on all that. He says, you also, like a farmer, need to be patient. I don't know much about farming because I grew up in South Florida, although if you go past Miami, there is Homestead and then there's the Keys. Homestead was known for its rural areas. There's a lot of farmers out there. So I used to see farmland all the time when I'd drive to the Keys. The only thing I know about farming is when I was a kid, I'd have one of those little Dixie cups and I'd take a pumpkin seed, put it in there, and every day I'd go and look to see if it had grown and I had to be patient for that to sprout up. James is saying, look, we need to be patient like a farmer. A farmer sows, he reaps, he's got to wait for the rains, on and on and on. He says, be patient like the farmer. A second example he uses is the prophets. 
Notice, if you will, verses 10 through 11. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. He reminds these Jewish people, read the Old Testament, look at the prophets. You got a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had to warn the southern kingdom if they didn't repent, they would go into captivity and Babylon would take them. They didn't listen, and you know what they ultimately did? They threw him in a mud pit, and he had to sit there for a while. In fact, in Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah cries out to God, and he says, God, where is your justice? God, why are you allowing this in my life? God, I've been given a raw deal. And you know what God does? He doesn't tenderly say to Jeremiah, oh, Jeremiah, I understand what you're going through. You know what he says to Jeremiah? He says, you need to keep up with the big boys. He rebukes Jeremiah. Or take, for example, Isaiah. Tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in half as a prophet for preaching the Word of God. He had to be patient as he warned the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You and I have to be patient. And then he uses one final example, and that would be Job. We all know the story of Job, verse 11. He says, you have heard of Job's endurance, that's bearing up under difficult circumstances, and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We know what happened to Job. Satan questioned Job's integrity. He said, the only reason, God, he follows you is because you bless him. Turn his health and his wealth away, and he'll curse you to your face. And God said, you know what? You have Adam. You must spare his life. Which, by the way, any trials we go through have to be father-filtered. Satan had to filter it through God. And so you know the rest of the story. Job was inflicted with boils. He ended up losing his children. He lost his wealth. He lost uh, his health. He ended up losing... Uh, his friends attacked him. He had his three deacon friends that came against him and basically said, the reason why you're suffering is because there's sin in your life. And then he had a cantankerous wife who said, curse God and die. Job was getting it from every angle. And what does he say here? Job was patient. He argued with God. And at the end, he repented. But he says, the Lord was compassionate and merciful towards Job. And so James is saying here, when you and I experience mistreatment or injustice, the second response is we need to be patient. And he uses three examples. He uses the farmer, he uses the prophets, and he uses Job's as example to show us that we need to be patient when you and I go through difficulty and suffering. You say, but Mike, I have been patient and I don't see the hand of God. I'm almost weary. I want to quit. I want to give up. And I understand because maybe all of us have been there before. I've dealt with people going through a divorce. When I was in South Carolina, I had this lady. Her husband divorced her, left her for a younger woman, and he did everything he could in the court systems to block supporting her. He was malicious. He was nefarious. And she was almost broken under the weight of it. I had to pray with her several times on Wednesday night. And it's like, Lord, where are you in the midst of this? God promises he will vindicate us, but we have to be patient. You say, but yeah, if I'm patient, when is the Lord going to vindicate me? Well, I know this because James says, wait until what? Be patient until the Lord's what? Coming. Be patient until His coming. Listen to what Jesus said in the parable of Luke chapter 18. There was a woman who wanted justice. She was an old woman, and she went to a judge that basically didn't care about God, didn't care about other people, but this old woman wanted justice, and so she kept pounding the judge saying, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. 
And Jesus said in the parable, even though the man didn't fear God, even though he didn't care about people, he gave the woman justice because of her persistence. And then Jesus draws the application. Notice what he says here. Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, God's going to vindicate his own, but sometimes we may not get that until Jesus Christ returns or we die and go to heaven. And so that's why he says you've got to be patient. And he says, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, there are a lot of people that are going to jettison their faith. Why? Because they don't see God's justice. And so we're to be patient until the Lord returns. He will give us justice. There's a third response that James gives us to dealing with mistreatment or injustice, and that is this. We must stay faithful or committed to God. We must stay faithful or committed to God. Notice, if you will, verse 8 of James 5. You also (coughs) must be patient. And then he says this, underline it, circle it, strengthen your hearts, your inner man, because the Lord's coming is near. Now that word in the Greek, strengthen your heart, means to be committed, to be faithful, to be resolved. It means to be determined to follow God. In other words, you are going to stand your ground and you're going to drive your convictions in the ground and you're going to continue to serve the Lord and follow the Lord until he returns or you die. In fact, the word in the Greek is used in Luke 9.51 where it says, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus had an appointment with the cross and he was fixed, he was resolved that he was going to go to Jerusalem. That's the idea here of staying committed. You say, well, why is this important? Because when we experience injustice, when we experience mistreatment and we feel like God's not answering our prayers on our timetable, we can get discouraged and we can sort of cool off in our relationship to God. We stop going to church. We stop praying. Or we say, you know what? This Christianity thing doesn't work for me, so I'm done. You say, well, are those people really saved? Maybe. I don't know. That woman I told you at the beginning, Alice, she said if it wasn't for Voice of the Martyrs coming in at just the right time, and God knows our breaking point, he knows our load limit, she said I would have become an unbeliever. Because, listen, when things happen over and over and over again, we can get discouraged. And so we got to make a decision that we are going to drive a stake in the ground and we're not going to quit. We're going to persevere. We're going to keep serving the Lord. And listen, when you get knocked down, you get back up. You may have times where you're discouraged, and we all deal with discouragement differently. I get it. But we got to get back up and keep serving the Lord. How many ever heard of a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick? Florence Chadwick was the first woman to swing the, uh, swim the English Channel back and forth. She grew up swimming, loved the water, and so she decided that she was going to swim from Catalina Island all the way up to the coast of California. You'll notice the map up there. And what she was going to do, there it is, uh, she was going to uh, swim that distance of about 20 to 21 miles. And so it was an inhospitable day. She got in the water. It was very cold. There was a lot of sharks around, so she had a lot of supporting boats around her. Her mother was in one of those boats, and they had to shoot the sharks in the area to make sure they didn't attack her. And so she swam and swam and swam. This went on for 8, 9, 10, 11 hours. The fog was so thick. The water was cold. She finally said, 
to her mother, I'm done. I can't do it. So they pulled her out of the water, only to realize that she was a half a mile from the shore of California. Now, two years after attempting the first time, she tried it again, and she completed it. And the first time when she didn't complete it, they asked her why. She said, you know what? She said, I couldn't see the shore. The fog was there, and I couldn't see the end. And you know what? Many times we get discouraged like her. We don't finish the swim. We don't finish running the race. Why? Because we get discouraged. We want to quit. We want to give up. And God says, listen, even though there's fog, even though there's difficulty, I want you to know that I'm at the other end, and I want you to persevere. And notice it says that we are to be patient until what? The Lord's coming. He says in verse 8, you must also be patient, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is what? Near. You say, Mike, when is he going to come? I don't know. But listen, I know it's only been two or three days. The day with the Lord is like a thousand years, Second Peter chapter 3 says. So we're what? Two 2,000 years later, a little over 2,000 years? Listen, it's only been two days, and so our timetable is not God's timetable. And so we have to be patient, and we have to what? We have to stand firm and be committed. There's a fourth response James gives us here in dealing with injustice or mistreatment, and that is stop complaining. Ooh, ouch. Verse 9, brothers, do not complain about one another. Yep, 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 yep. So that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Jesus is pictured as standing at the door, getting ready to open it, his second coming. He's saying, guys, stop complaining and grumbling against one another. The word complain here means to inwardly complain. It means to murmur. It means to moan. It means to sigh. And you know what? We often complain about our circumstances. God, I don't like this. God, I don't like that. And then we take our complaining out on other people. You know, it's hard to be around people that are negative all the time. You ever been around somebody who complains all the time? They're negative. Everything is bad, and they complain about this and the other. You don't want to hang around them because they're negative. And listen, we all struggle with complaining. And you know what I found? The more you have, the more you can tend to complain. And when you're in tough circumstances, you're being pinched. It's easy to complain. Even when we're blessed, I was reading about this uh, Mexican tour guide who was taking this fellow out from the U.S., and they went to this area, and they noticed there was a hot spring and a cold spring, and the Mexican women would come there to do their laundry. It was a great setup because they had hot water and cold water right next to each other, and so they would take their clothes, dip it in the hot water, and then they would put it immediately in the cold water. And so the tourist said to the tour guide, he said, man, these women must be thankful to Mother Nature. We don't believe in Mother Nature, but they must be thankful to Mother Nature that they have hot water and cold water near each other to do their laundry. And he said, no, senor. He says, no, they complain all the time because Mother Nature does not provide soap. See, we find things to complain about all the time. And the Bible says we're to watch that. We're to watch the grumbling. You know the best way to deal with complaining I have found in my own life is to have an attitude of gratitude. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Having an attitude of thanksgiving, whether we feel like it or not, is the best way to deal with complaining and grumbling in our life. And we all struggle with it at times. 
Listen, go in your house, and when you're in a dump, dumpy mood or you're struggling, start thanking God for the things in your house. Lord, I thank you for my bed. Lord, I thank you for my toothpaste. Lord, I thank you for indoor plumbing. Lord, I thank you for my refrigerator with food. Lord, I thank you for my spouse. I thank you for my children. Lord, I thank you for my bed. Lord, I thank you for all my spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. On and on and on. You know what that does? It short circuits complaining. And they were being pinched. And so they were grumbling against each other. And listen, we can take out our grumbling on our family members. And you know what? We're difficult to live with. We all battle this, and we all counter it through Thanksgiving. Well, there's a fifth way that you and I deal with mistreatment or injustice, and that is be a person of your word. Be a person of your word. Notice, if you will, verse 12. And we don't know the circumstances of what was going on with this, but he introduces something to us interesting. He says, now above all, in other words, this is preeminent, this is priority, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no, so that you will not fall under judgment. And this judgment, by the way, is a different Greek word. It's referring to God's eternal judgment. So what's going on here? Well, what is an oath? An oath is when we swear something in order to reinforce the truthfulness of what we are saying. So if I'm telling somebody something and I want them to really believe that I'm telling them the truth, I'll swear an oath to God in order to reinforce what I'm saying as being true. And typically in ancient times and even today, we swear by God. Why? Because we're basically acknowledging when we swear to God that God is witness and He will judge us if we don't fulfill the oath that we are declaring. So the Jewish people would swear oaths all the time. This was rampant in first century Judaism. They would use oaths frivolously all the time. And they would say this, that, and the other. Now listen, God is not against swearing oaths altogether. A lot of people use James chapter 5 to teach that we should not swear oaths in a court of law. We should never swear oaths. You have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. The Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to swear oaths to God. In fact, we know that he allowed Israel to swear oaths. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 6.13, God said to Israel, fear Yahweh your God, worship him, and take oaths in his name. We also know that God swore oaths to man. If you read Hebrews chapter 6, God swears an oath and he swears it by himself because there's no one greater than himself, but God himself swears an oath in Hebrews 6. Jesus, by the way, was put under oath in Matthew chapter 26 when he was asked by the religious establishment, are you the Christ, the Son of God? We adjure you. Jesus answered under oath. Paul swore an oath in Galatians chapter 1. And listen, we all make oaths in judicial proceedings or even in marriage covenants. We swear an oath before God and before other people. So this verse is not prohibiting oath-taking. You say, what is it talking about? The Jewish people would do this, and this is how they got around it. If they swore an oath to God, they were obligated to keep that oath or that promise. They didn't have contracts in that day. So if they swore an oath to God, they were bound to keep that oath. But in order to get out of the oath, here's what they would swear by. They would swear by something other than God. I swear to God by the hairs on my head. Eh, cancel it out. I swear to God by the temple. I swear to God by the earth. Remember Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, don't swear by heaven and earth. It's the footstool of God. See, what they would do is if they swore by something other than God, they were exonerated from keeping their oath. Today, we do it like this. 
I cross my heart and hope to what? Die. See, we, we make those two, but this right here is a negation. Kids do this all the time. So what James is condemning here, watch this, is the frivolous use of oaths and swearing by something other than God so that you would not be bound to keep your oath. So James says, stop doing that. It's wrong. It reflects bad character. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to use oaths all the time. They are used sparingly, and God is okay with that, but we don't need to use them constantly in order to reinforce the truthfulness of what we're saying. Why? Because we need to be people of integrity. We need to be people of our word. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, watch the commitments you make to other people and follow through on your commitments. If you sign up for a credit card and you charge, pay your credit card. I know you're not swearing an oath, but you're making a commitment. If you promise somebody you'll do something, follow through on it. There are times when we have to get out, and we may have to talk to that person and say, hey, can I do this or this, that, or the other? But listen, don't be a person that is constantly saying yes and do no. If you sign the clipboard, show up. Now I'm meddling, aren't I? Now, there are times where you have to get out, but listen, too often we make commitments and we swear oaths and we have no intention of following through, and that's a lack of integrity. God wants us to be people of our word. Well, there's one final principle James gives here in dealing with mistreatment or injustice, and that is this in verse 13, engage in prayer, engage in prayer. Notice what he says, is anyone among you suffering? And obviously many of them were to whom James wrote to, he should pray. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this because we're going to get into the next message on prayer, but James is saying if you're suffering, if you're hurting, pray. And you know what prayer does? Prayer gives us God's perspective when we're going through mistreatment, and it helps us to forgive those who have mistreated us or committed injustice against us. But listen, sometimes we have to wrestle with God in prayer because we don't want to forgive. We want our pound of flesh. We don't want to love our enemies. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, challenging passage, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Ooh, That's the opposite of the world. The world has a dirty, hairy mentality or a Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. Proverbs 25 goes even a step further and says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, Give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In that day, when a person did something shameful, what they would do is they would take coals, put it on a pan, and that person would have to put it on his head, and they would have to walk, and everybody would know that that person was remorseful and shameful for what they did. When you forgive your enemy, when you love your enemy, when you serve your enemy, it's like you're putting burning coals on their head. They are shamed because the normal response of the world is to come back at you. When you don't react that way, they go, what is, what is up with this person? How did this person forgive me? Even though I mistreated them, it breaks their defenses down and it shames them because they realize how they're treating you as wrong. Now, does that, does that mean everybody has that response? No. But the Bible says to pray. If we are suffering, engage God in prayer. On Facebook, just the other day, I forwarded this on my Facebook post. It said this, it's okay to pray. 
Pray out loud. Pray in your head. Pray in a whisper. Pray on your knees. Pray in the car. Pray in the shower. Just pray. That's what the Bible says to do. Now listen, this is one of the best ways to help me persevere when I'm under difficulty, when I'm being mistreated, when I'm experiencing injustice. My time with God is so critical, me abiding in Christ, John 15. Because when I stay connected to God, I'm in the Word, I'm in prayer, God is able to strengthen me and help me to persevere so I don't throw on the towel and quit. Because listen, if we're all honest, there are times where you want to throw on the towel and quit. He said, I never struggle with that. Go through what the lady did in Africa and we'll find out. You experiencing mistreatment or injustice in your life right now, going through a difficulty? How does God want you to respond? First of all, realize that God will vindicate you. Secondly, be patient or long-suffering. Thirdly, stay faithful or committed to God. Don't quit. Number four, stop complaining. Number five, be a person of your word. And finally, engage in prayer. Now, next time, We're going to look at how to be a prayer-driven Christian because James is going to hit this last section with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for reminding us of how we need to respond to the difficulties of life. And God, we admit that this this is a tough passage. It's not easy. God, it goes against our fallen nature to love those who persecute us and to pray for those who mistreat us. Give us grace, and I thank you, God, even in our failure, you are merciful and you are gracious to us. And if there's anyone here this morning that is struggling, who is hurting, Lord, comfort them, help them to persevere, help them not to quit. And God, we pray for our brothers and sisters overseas that are suffering for the gospel. They've been imprisoned. Many of them have been killed. There are widows who are suffering. We ask that you would bring this passage to them. Give them comfort. Help them to persevere. Help them not to quit. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.